We've been astounded by the amount of positive feedback we've received from our listeners, especially on social media. At Train with Megan recently tweeted us, You have to start being weekly. Just got caught up and can't wait for another episode. To answer that, we would love to be a weekly podcast, but we need the resources to do so. In fact, becoming a weekly podcast is one of our goals on our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash thin air podcast. On our Patreon, you can make a monthly donation of any amount of $1 or more. Your donation means that we are able to expand the scope of what we're currently able to do. Not only could we release episodes on a more frequent basis, we could also upgrade our audio equipment, rent a private recording space, and become much more involved in the cases we investigate. As we become a more established podcast, we will also begin setting up rewards for our Patreon donators. To not miss out, head over to patreon.com forward slash thin air podcast. This week, we're doing a follow-up to the Marie Ann Watson story that Jordan reported on in episodes two and three. If you haven't listened to those episodes, you might want to listen to them first. One of the benefits of producing a podcast that focuses on open cold cases is that we can respond to new information in real time, as it's discovered. So, as new information becomes available to us, we feel it is our obligation to pass that on to you, the listener. This episode is the next event that happened to us in the case of Marie Ann Watson. I'll let Jordan tell you the rest. As I started the story of the Marie Watson disappearance back in October of 2015, I began to realize that though this was a story from 1977, many of the people involved were still alive. In part two of this story, we found and interviewed Dorothy Rogers, the last woman to see Marie Watson alive. She's in her 70s now. Dorothy, along with her husband Michael, adopted many children throughout the 70s at their home in Emmett. For me, the children in this story were like ghosts. They were there at the time, the victims and witnesses of child abuse at the hands of their adopted parents. As I looked into the history of these children, I knew that I wanted to find as many of them as I could and talk to them, which is something that felt, as my research went on, nearly impossible. The first reason for this was that when the Rogers adopted children, they changed all of their names, and there were so many of them, it was easy to get them mixed up. I would often be reading an article about this case, and new names of children would pop up, children that I had never heard of before. It was hard to keep them straight. Even Detective Nesbitt, who we spoke to about this case, had a difficult time remembering all of them. When we spoke to Dorothy, she told us that she had fostered 18 children at one point, something that was hard to verify but seemed increasingly close to the truth. Early on in this story, someone I wanted to find, perhaps more than all of the other Rogers foster children, was Marie's daughter, who we called Sarah, which is not her real name. I knew that Marie's son, who also lived with the Rogers, didn't want to speak with even detectives about his mother's case, but Sarah had a blog, and from a search online, she had written about this story. Not only was she a child living in the Rogers' home, Marie was her mother. I was dying to know what she remembered about her, about what Marie was actually like. 
I was desperate to talk to her, actually, and I worried that my story couldn't progress without her. Then I found her on Facebook. I knew it was her from news footage Detective Nesbitt gave me. The same reddish-brown hair, same face as in the 1996 news clips. Here's something you might not know about Facebook. If you aren't connected to a person, meaning you have no connections in common and aren't friends, Facebook charges you a dollar to make sure your message appears in their inbox. I did this three times, and each time I checked, which was often, the message would sit unread. I didn't think she was ignoring me, but I don't think she ever got my messages either. Rereading them now, I can feel my slight desperation. There's a lot of pleases and hopes in there. I didn't know what to expect by reaching out through Facebook, if it was horribly inappropriate or if I was just being a diligent, dedicated journalist. Regardless, none of my messages got through, and I had to continue on with my story, though a growing fear led me to worry that the episode, which details a deeply personal story for her, would come out and she would be horrified. I at least wanted to give her a heads up. So a few weeks before the story came out, I added her as a friend, and to my surprise, she accepted. I posted hastily on her wall, quote, Hi, thanks for adding me. This is going to sound strange, but would you message me? I've been trying to contact you through Messenger, but my messages never go through. It would mean so much. Thanks. And then, nothing. We released part one of the story of her mother's disappearance, which was plastered all over my personal Facebook page, as well as Thin Air podcast page. Still nothing. Then two weeks later, I posted the second part. The cover art for that episode is a photo of Marie's face at her happiest, smiling in black and white like a senior photo. And then, the morning after the release of our episode, finally... Sarah, whose real name is Sandy, saw everything I had been trying to say for nearly six months. My name is Sandy. It's S-A-N-D-I. I've gotten used to saying I'm Sandy with an I. I've forgotten that's not my middle name. <laughs> I am Marie's daughter by birth. She's, she's my mother, and um, her husband at the time may or may not be my father. I don't really know. So... Sandy and I spoke twice. The first time we spoke was informal, unrecorded. It felt like I had so much to say, like I was catching up with an old friend. It was so nice to, after months of guessing at parts of my story, have the blanks filled in from someone who was there, in the middle of it all. When we sat down to record, the first thing we talked about was her mother, Marie. I remember her hugging me. You know, I remember a little bit of her face, like I remember red hair, and... I remember the freckles on her arms. As strange as that might sound, that's really one of the strongest memories that I have of her is the the freckles on her arm. And I have freckles on my arms as well. So it's this connection that has always stayed with me to remember the freckles on her arm and be able to look down and see the freckles on my own. She, she had struggles, and there's no doubt about that, but I have always felt with absolute certainty, like, deep in my heart, that my mother loved me. Like, that has always been with me, and it there have been times in my life where that has sustained me through great difficulties. Just, that is something that has been always in the background of my life, that I know my mother loved me. I felt 
loved by her. At the time Marie went missing, Sandy lived with the Rogers and was only six years old. It wasn't until 1996, when her former foster sibling Raymond was arrested, that police formally interviewed her. She gave a deposition, testifying that she saw her mother's body in dismemberment. A quick warning to sensitive listeners, this next part is a little graphic, so be advised. Do you remember the last time you saw your mother alive? I remember when I saw my mother dead. Um, the, I would like to just point out that the difficulty of telling this is in large part because of the way that I remember it. I don't necessarily remember these things in the order that they happened, and I don't remember what happened in between each of these incidents. So please forgive me if it comes out kind of a little garbled. So the, the first thing that I remember was waking up to the sound of a very human scream in the middle of the night. I, I ran to the window. I tried to go back to sleep, but I was very, I couldn't really go back to sleep. But then the next memory I have is being downstairs. The bedroom where I remember that happening was, in, was upstairs. Now the next memory I have is being downstairs and hearing somebody coming in the front door. Now I was not allowed to be up at night, so I was afraid. So I hid. And I saw Mike come into view, came in through the front door, straight up the hallway towards what would be the stairs right in front of him. And he stopped and he talked and then he continued forward. And when he came into view, he was carrying my mother, like bride style. Um, So he was carrying her bride style and her head had fallen down like over the back of his arm Um, so I could see her face with her hair dangling down and her arm had flopped down and it was kind of it just didn't look right to me like you know as an adult I think it was probably broken because it looked very peculiar and he carried her up the stairs and at that point, that's the end of the memory. Um, but I, I have to tell you, in that moment, as I saw that happen, I knew she was dead. Just all hope of ever escaping them completely died inside of me. And and I felt that on every level. I knew she was dead. And I also felt guilt because connected to that moment is the memory of being on the front porch of Mike and Dorothy's house begging my mom to just take my brother and I and run away, run away as far as she could, as fast as she could, because I was so afraid that they were going to kill her. And I was begging and begging her to please save me. And now as a a mother, you know, myself, I realize how, 
how much that must have tortured her to not be able to do that with me begging the way I did. And so in that moment, I felt not only the pain of her death, but I also felt like I had betrayed her by but by begging her to take us because they had told me if anybody ever tries to take you away from us we'll kill them and now she was dead the next memory Sandy describes is of being upstairs not soon after she saw Mike carrying her mother's body she remembers, as we discussed in episode 3, a wall with the false back that she pushed in. She found her mother inside. And she wasn't moving. She was just staring at me, and her eyes looked not right. And her cheekbone had... The skin over her cheekbone had been split, and her cheekbone was poking out of the split skin of her cheek. That's that's the end of the memory. Like, it just ends abruptly. You know, someone must have startled me or something. I just, that's, that's the whole memory. And then, again, in a very uh, isolated moment, like, you know, if you were watching a movie, it would be like a cut scene to the next scene, I guess. Um, I, I see... Mike and Dorothy squatted on the ground. I am at the corner of the house, just squatting in my nightgown. Mike and Dorothy, Raymond, somebody I didn't know, and Jimmy Watson were over in this pool of light. It was a lamp, uh, a utility lamp that they usually used for working on the cars was connected to a extension cord and it was laying on the ground and and in a circle around this pool of light and they were butchering. Now, they butchered frequently so I understood what they were doing. And they were talking in low voices and I can't remember what they said. But, you know, I have no idea. But what stands out for me in the end is they were butchering and what they were butchering they were throwing into the pig pen now for people who don't know this pigs will eat everything including bone so it was a very efficient way that they used frequently to get rid of unwanted stuff so as I was watching and it was so cold and I was just riveted anyway I saw an arm fall from behind Dorothy into the pool of light and I remember the spike of just something that went through me you know I guess maybe it was horror I don't really know I just remember an intense feeling just driving through me almost like I had just been shot. And 
I couldn't move. Like I, I felt completely stuck in that moment as they carried on. And then I remember lights coming up the road and they panicked. And then that's where my memory ends as well. Something that really stood out to me in Sandy's story is her memory of Jimmy Watson, who was Marie's husband at the time, as being there at the scene of her mother's dismemberment. I described Jimmy in episode two as someone who is caring and loving toward Marie, but now, after talking to Sandy, it seems that Jimmy knew much more than he let on. Well, I'm going to tell you that he definitely had something to do with it, and I believe that all of his... Oh, I called her missing. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. was completely to an attempt to distance himself from what happened because there are memories that I have of what I witnessed with regards to the disposal of my mother's body. And he was one of the people who was involved in that moment. And and here's an interesting fact for you that I don't know if you heard about this or not, but when we were there in 1996, I saw Jimmy Watson standing over at the line of the fence and I walked over to him and I looked him in the face and I said, I remember everything that happened. And the next day he had agreed prior to that, the next day to be in and do a lie detector test at the sheriff's department. Not only didn't he show up, but he actually left. He skipped town. That's interesting. Why would he do that if everything he was trying to do was to find her? Well, I, you know, I leave that up to others to speculate, but I looked him in the face and, and I told him, I remember everything. And he ran. Sandy also described to detectives a memory that she couldn't place as a child, but that fit in with Dorothy's story of that drive to Ontario. And one last memory that that was very difficult for me as well to, to kind of put together was that I also remember a, uh, I think of it as a Ford Mustang I guess it was a galaxy, but to me as a kid, I wouldn't have known the difference, you know. Uh, I just remember a blue Ford Mustang disappearing into the bog right between the house and the bus stop. We were walking to the bus stop, and I saw this car disappearing into the bog. And what was interesting to me was that I saw saw the seats, the front seats, had red, like dark, dark red on the black and white seats. And until 1996, I had always dismissed that memory because cars don't come with black and white seats. It wasn't until 1996 that Tom actually told me, well, you know, it just so happens that one of the boys that lived there had cowhide seat covers. And he had a blue Ford. This car in the bog, it was one of the first questions we asked Detective Nesbitt. I had read about it in Sandy's blog, and I wondered what could have happened to it. This car, which could have been Raymond's Ford Galaxy, the one that Marie and Dorothy could have taken that last trip in, 
it seemed like, to my producer Daniel and I, too huge a piece of evidence to not be followed up on. Sandy talks about in her blog seeing um, them a car sinking into a swamp on her way to school that they had put. And I was just wondering if that that was that lead was followed up on at all. Um, do you know what I'm talking? Do you know I, that part? I remember something that? about that. You know, Sandy had described to me. We never mm-hmm. did figure out where the car or the swamp was, and she couldn't ever place it. We really, I mean, we just don't really have any swamps over there. But you know, being so young, it might not even have been a swamp. It could have been like the pond. But those ponds that she that would have been in, they've been drained so many times over the years and had things fixed and, you know, they've right. had fish issues. So they've drained them and fixed things and filled them back up. Every year they let the lake and the river down, no yeah. cars. Wherever the car ended up, Sandy did remember something very specific of that body of water nearby. Things changed so much in 20 years. They could have filled it in, um, but he did say that there was a bog right near there. And in fact, I believe it was the same bog that was behind the house. Dorothy at one point took me out to that bog behind the house. That It was actually running water at the time. I don't know if it still is. And she was angry with me and she was punishing me and she gave me a sledgehammer and told me to break the ice. Uh, because I needed to clean myself up because she had left me standing in quote-unquote timeout until I wet myself because they wouldn't let me go use the bathroom. And so she took me out there. She told me to break the ice. Of course, I couldn't lift the sledgehammer. So she broke the ice, made me get in, and the current actually started to pull me under. This is where Sandy and I began to really discuss what she experienced at the hands of her foster parents, Michael and Dorothy Rogers. Okay, well, here's my honest belief that I have come to over the years, where I believe that the silence of victims is what protects perpetrators. So I will tell you the the reality of my relationship with them, um, and much of it is extremely stark. And so I would appreciate if you would keep this disclaimer in for your listeners Anybody who is very, very sensitive to the suffering of children probably should not listen to what I'm about to say. So first, I've listened to your first two podcasts, and I heard Dorothy talking about, you know, rescuing kids. And, and you know, I can believe that she honestly believed in her own mind that she was doing that. But in practical application, it was more like rescuing stray animals and not people. They were not people to them. And and in particular, I was especially not a person to them. You know, in her mind she had rescued me, yes, but you know, she had rescued me this little stray creature. And they actually called me a bitch and I had to eat on the floor with the other dogs because I was not a person. And and there were often jokes to try to get me to sit at the table. And when I would sit at the table and think, have the staggering audacity to think that I was a human being, they would beat me brutally. 
savagely. Her view of rescuing is not what most of us would see as rescuing. I truly think that she thought, you know, that she believes what she says. But she has this rage that once it's unleashed, it's staggering in its brutality. So that was Dorothy. Um, What was Mike like? Mike was radically different. Um, I would say that his rage was equally as horrifying and often much worse, but it was colder. It was a calculating, just unbelievably brutally calculating, well thought out level of how much pain can I humanly inflict to what, you know, it was like he was testing the limits of how much any of us could take. And he was so much colder. Like, I would say Dorothy's rage was, you know, just white hot, violent bursts of incredible venom and his was long, cold, calculating, and hard. The boys, all of the boys except Raymond, all of them were beaten, but but more rarely because the belief there were that boys had value and girls had very little value. Um, so, you know, there were beatings, being tied outside naked until complete sunburn from head to toe, so bad that you put your clothes on and your clothes would stick. Um, you know, cigarettes put out on your skin. I still have scars from that. I'm, I imagine that Kathleen probably does too. These reports of abuse in the Rogers home, and what Sandy describes here, have been confirmed by everyone in this story. That is, of course, except for Raymond and Dorothy herself. Raymond wrote to me that he never experienced anything more than the occasional spanking, all very routine. This would make sense with what Sandy describes, that Raymond was treated differently than the other foster children, that he was special. Raymond didn't experience what the other children did. Sandy and I talked about some of her other foster siblings and what they endured living with the Rogers. When Sandy lived with them, there were six other children living in the home, including Sandy's brother. Any names you hear her saying are names of former foster siblings. You know, I'm, it's so hard to, to even just get into the whole level of abuse that went on there. Uh, Kevin, he was often kept chained in a room and he would literally just rip his own fingernails out trying to escape and they would beat him you know 
he and I, I believe, took really the worst of it. For whatever reason, he was the bottom of the pecking order for the boys, and I was the bottom of the pecking order for the girls. And in Kevin, even at the time, I just felt so much sorrow for what they put him through. Raymond, you know, everyone's aware of Raymond at this point. Uh, he was the golden boy, you know. He he could do very little wrong. I remember him being punished only once. Uh, he didn't face a lot of what the rest of us did. Um, Kathleen, at one point, was... She... Mike got her pregnant. And you know, that was bad enough by itself, but Dorothy went into a rage and dragged her in the bathroom and beat her until literally Kathleen started bleeding right there. And I assume that she had a miscarriage right there from the beating because she bled so badly. It was, blood was all over the floor. In my research of this story, I tried to find as many former Rogers children as I could, which was not an easy task. Sandy's brother, who we call John, wants nothing to do with this story. Raymond was easy enough to find, as he's on death row at San Quentin now. Kevin, the boy Sandy is speaking of here, is himself missing, though when I spoke to others in this case, they said he was missing on purpose, that he wanted nothing to do with his old life. Rocky, the other boy, died under suspicious circumstances. Dorothy was the last person to see him alive, and told police that he got hit by a train. I could not find Kathleen. In our third episode, we detailed the arrest of Michael Rogers, who was charged with raping Kathleen. This gruesome story that Sandy tells, this could have been what led to his eventual arrest. Sandy told me that Kathleen is alive, but she's in hiding. That leaves one last foster child that I confirmed living in the Rogers home, whose name is Michelle. I actually managed to find her, again on Facebook. We had a brief conversation. She was very wary of me. She still lives with Dorothy and claims that the Rogers never did her any harm. Michelle did briefly tell me the story of how she was adopted, that the Rogers picked her up in Boise, and they then, the next day, adopted son Rocky in North Dakota. She said this was in 1969. She didn't say much else. She still lives with Dorothy and is a mother herself, which means that Dorothy is not only around children, but is still a caretaker for them today. It's hard to explain the things that went on there because the level of abuse even now, as an adult, I often think, well, you know, it was typical things. There there were typical, quote-unquote, things. Like, you know, being locked in closets for hours and hours and hours. You know, things that you hear about already in abuse cases. And, and I would call them kind of standard abuses. If these were standard abuses that Sandy experienced, then there were abuses that were different and were decidedly not standard, and they make for the most sensational aspect of this case. As we continue to discuss what she had experienced with the Rogers, I had to ask her about her experiences involving Satanism and ritualistic abuse. 
Sandy claims that she experienced, at the hands of Michael Rogers and many unknown adults, satanic ritual abuse involving herself and many other children who she claims had been kidnapped. What she described to me as going through is something even she's been skeptical of in her life. In the 1980s, there was a really big thing about recovered memories of satanic ritual abuse. And I went through a phase during that time when I was very excited, as crazy as that sounds, because I thought, oh, that is so wonderful. I had, you know, implanted memories and and they're not real. And so I went to the counselor and I said, hey, you know, I'm so excited. How can I get over these implanted memories? And she's like, well, who implanted them? And I'm like, well, I don't know. What do you mean? And she said, well, you know, they have to come up in hypnosis to be implanted memory. So who did the hypnosis with you? Because, you know, she was outraged that someone had done this to to a client. And to my very great disappointment, apparently implanted memories are not ones that you have never forgotten. (laughs) So I, I was rather disappointed to find out that, okay, I guess that, you know, that's not an excuse for it. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it sounds kind of silly, I know, but I had really hoped I was getting out of the belief that this really happened to me. And, you know, going forward and talking about it, it's difficult because our society is very much a blame the victim society. And it makes us, afraid to come forward and tell the truth. None of us, including me to whom it happened, none of us want to believe this really happens. None of us want to believe it's real. And so, you know, it's scary to talk about it from the standpoint of how many people want it to be not real and and would do anything for it to be not real. But unfortunately, it was very real in my experience. Sandy then described to me what she remembered. Oh, gosh, it's hard to express this. It's hard to explain it because, you know, I'm seeing it again from from the eyes of a child, right? Sofas on the wall that you would be facing as you come in the room. And they were draped in black. So the whole room looked black, but but there there were furnishings, okay? There were lamps on two tables like two end tables at the end of the two sofas, okay? Um, and the, the tables were covered in, like, black cloth or something, too. But to the right side of the room, just slightly to your right, was, I guess we'll call it an altar, but it was just basically a, a rectangular box, black. And on, the, on that was a basin that was tipped forward slightly so it would almost be like a like a chair that a child could recline in but it was a basin and it was like gold or copper brass i don't know it was some kind of a a yellowish metal behind that was a cross It was painted black also, and it had bondage 
accoutrements on it, right? Handcuffs and leather strips. And it was not the child. It was not the size for an adult. It was the size for a child. Because we, the children, were the party favors for this orgy, for lack of a better way to say it. And they would, <laughs> it's so hard to talk about because it's so, it's also wrong. And they were doing drugs, like, you know, bongs, and they were doing drugs, and there was music, very heavy, like, drumming kind of music. And so they would tie a boy in the basin, and he would be assaulted sexually, and they would dump blood on him. Then he would be dragged over to the cross and he would be put on the cross facing the cross and shackled to it. And there he would be sexually assaulted again and beaten. Sandy then described how she herself would be put into this basin and sexually assaulted. She then described how the adults in this room, who wore hoods to cover their faces, would manipulate her to perform sexually by threatening to hurt other children. Maybe it should go without saying at this point, but if you are sensitive to graphic material, please be advised. And after a while, when I would not cooperate still, they would tell me that they would kill them if I didn't cooperate. And in the beginning, that worked. And there were three times that I chose not to cooperate, knowing what would happen. And I watched them kill two boys and one girl. You know, I, it took me a lot of years to forgive myself for that, to, to come to, you know, you can intellectually understand that I was put into a situation where I really didn't have a choice. That's an easy intellectual understanding. But it's harder for the heart. But I don't know if I'll ever get to the place where I stop feeling sad when I see the suffering in their eyes. I don't know how you let go of that sadness for those children. Like, 
I understand we're all adults now, but I still feel that sadness for the children that we were. Sandy lived with the Rogers for three years. During this time, she was beaten, sexually assaulted, and saw her mother murdered. I don't know why there's this voice in my head still that's so skeptical about Satanism. Maybe because it's the one part of her story that allows me some emotional distance, like a get-out-of-jail-free card. But that's not fair to Sandy, and it's not fair to what she really did go through. And that voice, the, oh, I don't know, that voice in my head... Why is it easier for me to think that she was possibly involved in some kind of pedophile sex ring than it is to picture satanic ritual abuse? Aren't both equally terrible, though only one seems more probable? We just don't want to believe it. None of us want to believe these kind of horrific, monstrous things are happening. And so I think even to this day, even now, there are times that people kind of turn a blind eye to questionable things. And so I think what they saw was questionable and they didn't really know the depth. And I was not able to articulate what I had been through. In episode two, we discussed how Sandy, along with some of her adopted siblings, were rescued in Arkansas after Mike and Dorothy went on the run. After this, Sandy and her brother were adopted by their grandparents, Marie's mother and father. Sandy's life after the Rogers was not easy. In trying to find both Marie and their grandchildren, Sandy's grandparents went bankrupt. Because of the abuse, Sandy had many physical and mental impairments. At age 16, she was removed from their home and hasn't had much contact with them since. I did not know how to be in human society. There was a time, one of the reasons why they decided that I was low-functioning autistic was because there was a time in the classroom where they decided, the, the school decided that it was time that I stopped eating on the floor in the back of the room and that I should have to sit at my desk with the other kids and eat like a proper person, okay? It's a fair request. There's, you know, if my background had been normal, it would have been a fair request. I thought it was a trick. I just knew that as soon as I sat down at that desk, I was going to get the you-know-what beat out of me. I knew it, and I actually, they worked so hard to get me in that desk, like they tried to physically put me in the chair. I picked up the desk and threw it across the room. In fact, there was a time that I actually, we, they said that Mike and Dorothy had been seen in the area. So we, my grandparents on my mother's side, the ones who adopted us, lived in Kansas at the time on a farm where they had lived, you know, however long. And they, um, they said that Mike and Dorothy had been seen in the area. Well, I tried to escape and get back to Mike and Dorothy. People will think, I, why would you? Why? That makes no sense at all. And of course, to my grandparents, it was, why would you do that? Why would you want to go back to those people? We know they hurt you. 
But what people are missing when they think of this situation is, remember, they promised me if anybody tries to take you away from us, we'll kill them. And they killed my mother and my grandparents took us away from them. I believed that if I could get back to Dorothy and Mike, I would be saving my grandparents. If you could say one thing to Mike or Dorothy now, what would you say? I don't think that I would have anything at all to say, honestly. I... I would love to be able to say, I would say something like, I forgive you, because I have forgiven them, but more for my own sake and my own ability to live my life and move on. I don't believe that that would matter to either of them. It wouldn't mean anything to them. They didn't even see me as a person to begin with. I just don't know that there would be anything worth saying to them because it wouldn't mean anything at all. Sandy's life now is much different than her childhood. It was hard for me to understand how she overcame what happened to her, but she did, and she said she did it largely on her own. Sandy is a mom herself now, as well as a writer, and just overall, after talking with her, I know her to be a kind and compassionate person. Any worries I'd had about what she thought of my story or how she'd react vanished the second I spoke with her. In talking with us about what she went through, Sandy helps her mother's story to not be forgotten. If there was one thing that you would want people to understand about your mother, what would it be? Because she was even by her own admission, a prostitute, and because she was drug addicted, doesn't mean that she had no value. It doesn't mean that she was a person who deserved to be forgotten. My mother will live on as long as I do. I will remember her as long as I'm alive. And every human being, no matter what, has value and worse. And my mother, when she died, she was forgotten by the people who might have been able to do something about it. And it's not right to forget any person, no matter what we as a society might say, well, you know, she was just a prostitute and a drug addict. She just ran off, you know, Her life mattered as much as anybody else's does. If you would like to learn more about the Marie Watson case, head over to our website at thinairpodcast.com. There you'll find information, pictures, and charts, including a family tree of those involved with this case. Thin Air Podcast would like to thank Sandy for speaking with us. 
While it was a difficult conversation, Sandy was nothing but kind and welcoming. We would also like to thank our nine Patreon pledgers, whose money goes to supporting the publication of this podcast. We really appreciate your support. To pledge a monthly amount to our podcast, head over to patreon.com forward slash thin air podcast. Mixing, mastering, and original music for this episode came from our friends at Conifer Audio. If you are interested in original compositions or other audio services for your own podcast, drop them a line at coniferaudio at gmail.com. Join us again in two weeks. Mm-hmm.